You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. All right, if you would, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, this is verses 16 through 23. Last week we looked at verses 6 through 15, where we ended on this this amazing passage where, where God has made us alive together with him. He's canceled the record of debt that stood before us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. And then verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame, it says. He triumphed over them. So that's kind of where we ended. And, and we're, we come off of this high where, where, where it is just God, Jesus has been triumphing. He has put the enemies to shame. He has nailed our debts to the cross, our sins, our trespasses. He's canceled it, all of these things. We've been buried with him, raised with him. This is an amazing passage of walking in him, in him, in him, in him. And as our series has pointed out to us, Jesus is the center of all things. And so then Paul shifts and he builds off of what he's already mentioned in verse eight. And he builds on that same idea where he is going today have a sense of warning us and encouraging us. And then it's gonna be leading us to chapter three. So let's, let's look at um, Colossians 3, verse 16. Hopefully that sets the, uh, the, the, the concept here. He's, he has a lot of warnings in here. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are sh- a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That, that verse right there, verse 17, if you can tuck that away, that's gonna be kind of the main thrust of today's message. You're gonna, that's gonna be what we're focusing on. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Verse 20 says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations like, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, do not, do not, do not, right? Verse 22, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom, so they look wise, but they have the appearance of wisdom promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And it's almost like his thought continued, I know I didn't tell the booth about this verse, but in chapter three, it then says, well then, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, and that is our That is our mind where he's been driving this whole bus to chapter three, getting us to say, if we have been raised with him, seek the things that are above, not dwelling in the things of our flesh. And so, uh, again, though, if we hop back to verse 17, that's gonna be kind of our thought today is the message is escape the shadows, escape the shadows. I was trying to think of different ways to help illustrate this idea, and it's been very formative for me this week to consider this concept of the shadow 
versus the substance, as it says in verse 17. And I've been thinking a lot about fairy tales these days because my um, daughter lost her first tooth last night, so the tooth fairy visited, and it's very exciting. And uh, you you, you see in the eyes of children just the twinkle in their eye when they see and they explore uh, their imagination, you know? And I think fairy tales and these children's stories uh, like Peter Pan, which I wanna give an illustration of today, is something that can help us, I think, start to think and consider for a moment just the the magnitude of the depth of life and even uh, of the truth of God's word. The childhood fairy tale of Peter Pan. In fact, C.S. Lewis uh, says that when I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret and would have been ashamed if I had found been found doing so. Now that I am 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childness, childishness and the desire to be very grown up, he says. So, so I think it's okay for us adults uh, to even experience and to dwell in the depth of even a story like Peter Pan and other fairy tales for I find uh, a lot of uh, those children's stories and nursery rhymes teach us a lot of truth and help illustrate certain things for us. Peter Pan is one of those stories that begins and, and really describes a lot of numerous things about life and explores different ideas, but the story of Peter Pan's always interested in me. It was one of my favorite Disney movies growing up. Uh, the Pan, uh, which is really, Pan means the god of everything, actually. Pan, the Peter Pan, he, he wants everything and ends up getting nothing kind of in the end. Peter Pan is this unique character. He wants everything without sacrifice. He wants to go about his life. He doesn't want to grow up, right? Isn't that the whole point? He doesn't want to grow up and he lives in a place that doesn't even exist, a non-reality place. He's weightless, he flies, and he lives in Neverland. Always in one way, you could say trying to, as many say, but he's trying to escape his shadow. Trying to avoid the reality of having to grow up in the time that will get us all. And so in the beginning, we have this peculiar scenario where Peter Pan is trying to find his lost shadow, right? He's running after a shadow and he doesn't want to face the reality of his existence and the substance of his being that is reflected in a shadow. And so it is as his shadow escapes and runs from him and by doing so his shadow leads him to Wendy and the children and they help him put the shadow on to kind of take on the substance and the reality of life. And the concepts of this shadow and substance is what the author J.M. Barry, who wrote Peter Pan is kind of playing with this concept for us to for Peter Pan to grow up and face reality and take on responsibility and face the substance before him that he can be substance of his being and the existence and his need to face the fact that he's gonna have to grow up. He can't live in Neverland forever. And to fill your bodily substance and be a man to hold the body there, to be a person. There is this idea of substance and shadow. There's a, another story, but it's much older than Peter Pan. And maybe you studied it in philosophy class where maybe you've heard of it. Uh, it's the allegory of the, clay, of the cave. Uh, the philosopher Plato and Socrates developed this concept. And it doesn't really refer exactly to the concept in which we're teaching today. He spoke a lot about education and the importance of it in this allegory of the cave. But it carries with it this concept that there are these people chained to a wall inside a cave their entire lives. They've been staring at the wall. And on the wall there are these shadows that are 
passing by them on the wall because behind them is a fire. And in front of that fire and the light, there's these figures making these little shadow puppets on the wall. And the people chained to the other wall are forced to look at these shadow puppets and, and name the shadows. But it's not until, as in so many words, the cave, that person can escape the cave and go out and see the true source of light, which is the sun, which is outside the cave, and to see the true forms of reality, which are no just shadow puppets, but the real things that exist outside the cave. Now Plato and Socrates are trying to share a whole lot of different things, but I think for us today, it helps us to think and consider for a minute uh, the importance of shadow versus substance. What a shadow is, you can even think of it this way, where, where the real form of it is, is seen even in the sky every day. You see the sun that emits light. The moon, however, does not emit any light. It only reflects the light of the sun. The moon just is a shadow or reflects what the sun emits and it is really just pointing us back to the source of all true light, which is the sun. And so we experience this concept here as Paul says to us, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance of them belongs to Christ. We as human beings are very prone to this, are we not? We are prone to to searching for shadows and chasing shadows and ignoring the substance. Almost like a cat is chasing a laser that's put on the floor and is so frustrated every time it tries to attack the laser that it gets nothing. The laser's gone, it's just a little light beam. Romans 1 describes this, that we all have this issue of that we eventually, uh, God gives us up to our own wills and desires for we have exchanged the creator for the worship of the creation. To willingly live in a false reality, spend our days making, as C.S. Lewis says, making mud pies because we can't imagine what it's like to enjoy a holiday at the sea. There's a wonderful vacation willing, waiting for us to enjoy, but we're too busy over here making mud pies in the ditch. We, 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 our imaginations are too, too small, he says. We, we don't long for joy and love enough. We're too willing to search for things that are mere shadows of the reality. And Paul says to us even today, and I know this passage was written a long time ago, and so as we examine what exactly is Paul saying to the Colossians in their context, we also take, uh, take effect to ourselves is how is this warning us today? That we are being warned along with the Colossian church by Paul, for these are the words of God. Hold fast to the head, he says, to the Christ. He is the center Don't go chasing shadows all the time. Instead, you must escape the shadows by holding fast to the head, which is the center. Paul isn't completely, though, discounting the usefulness of shadows, as it is useful in their own right. They can provide ways and directions and points and signposts to lead us to Christ, but those shadows and signposts and directions are not the things that are meant to draw our attention away from Christ. They are meant to point us to Christ. Religion, in so many words, or church, the local church, is meant to bring us, draw us, to help to provide a place for us to come together, to grow together in Christ. But it is not the thing in which we rely on. Our religion and our earning anything does not get us anywhere. And so this is what Paul is trying to encourage them and yet warn them against, decrying the dependency and the ultimate powerlessness of shadows. 
He's making comparisons to shadows as useful and helpful, yes, can be, but they are not essential. Jesus Christ is the center of all things and he himself is our only foundation and the substance of our faith. This is what we looked at last week. Everything else, the religion, the festivals, the ceremonies, the philosophies are mainly shadows of the real thing. And the old sacrificial system was not that God was pleased in the sacrifice of, blood, bull, of the blood of bulls and goats. But he desired obedience and truth and love and faithfulness to God, a heart change rather than an external. These things can be meant as guardrails or signposts, very similar to like climbing a mountain. When you climb a mountain like I did, yeah, yesterday I did Gap Mountain with my two girls. It's a smaller mountain near Mount Monadnock. It's a great little hike for kids. But as you hike along these trails, and if you're familiar with hiking around here, there's often little markers along the way. And thank goodness they are, because some of the lesser known trails, you could get off the trail really quickly, very easily, if you're not paying attention. And the trail goes through the woods, up the mountain, and along the way, there's little white dots, or little white arrows, or little white crosses, or um, typically different markings and trail markings. And then occasionally there's wooden signs pointing you to the top. And as you're along that trail, you're hiking along, Paul's saying as you hike the trail, as you go about this walking in him, as he says in Colossians 2, 6, you're gonna encounter people along the trail. So be careful, for there were going to be two types of people along this trail, two extremes, people who are heavily steeped in what he is gonna describe to us as legalism. Legalism, people who are requiring you to walk a certain way along the path. Uh, and then they're making you along every path to touch every single white dot as you go. You can't pass by it, you gotta touch it, right? They're just making up rules in order for you to meet the standard that they've created. And they're forcing you to walk along the trail in their way, in their design. And then you have this other kind of way of, of a person along the trail who could be kind of a, a mystic, a selfish mysticism is what he's gonna be talking about today where they stand along the trail marking a point of the trail that they have reached and they remind everyone along the trail that they have reached that mark and they got there first. <laughs> they were the ones who have reached this and they can help you reach this point as well. Come, look at this white dot with me. Oh, how amazing it is, right? And they, they wanna show you about how amazing they are and how impressive they look and all the experience they have in hiking. And then you sit around for a while describing and talking about and wasting time and maybe you get wander off the trail and you forget the very point that you're supposed to be there which is to hike the mountain, to climb the trail, to behold the beauty of all around, to eventually reach the mountaintop and the goal. You spend all your time looking at the signs and checking out and touching all the white dots and distracting yourselves from what you're meant to do. And ultimately these kinds of people will come upon you in life and they will either judge you or disqualify you and attempt to try to do both. So this idea of escaping these shadows, escaping, you could say, these distractions, which are meant to, to, to can be worshiped and distract us from following Christ, what belongs to him. And so I think this is a concept that I want us to kind of examine today, escaping these shadows. The title is not original with me. There's Mark Maynell is the one where I borrowed this title, Escape from the Shadows. His work on Colossians has really been helpful for me. But Colossians 2, verse 17, in the NIV says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the reality, however, is found in Christ. Uh, the KJV says, uh, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is Christ. 
The NLT says, for these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. And the ESV we're reading today, these are the shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And maybe you've already noticed this word substance, the translated reality, body, substance, this idea is, is kind of all enveloped in that word where there is a body casting a shadow upon these things. It is, as if, it is as if Jesus is the center of history and he stands along the timeline of past, present, and future. And Jesus on the cross stands there as a giant tower for all the world to see. And the sun casts light upon Jesus and his shadow is falling on the past and his shadow falls on the future. And it is through Jesus that we see the substance and the meaning of all of life. And that through the shadows that he has cast for us, we can look and see Jesus. And in the future, like where we are today, we look back and we see the shadow fall on us today and we see the person of Jesus as he towers above all of history. Jesus is the substance, he is the center. This builds upon the idea that Paul's been teaching us. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In Christ, with Christ, means you're united with him, bound with him, he is all you need. There is nothing to be added to in order to get you or achieve a higher rung or a way, for he has nailed it to the cross. We are forgiven, our sin has been canceled, you are now free. We sang about that, we're free, free. Right? So don't listen to people who Paul is saying here, don't listen to the people who are trying to enslave you, judge you, disqualify you, put you down and put themselves higher than you. And he mentions some of these ideas that are mentioned in verse eight and in the passage we just read. And so the two concepts that I want us to examine as we look at really uh, the, the ideas that are found in verse 16 and verse 18 are, are really these ideas of legalism and mysticism. These are the two concepts that I want us to explore today that I think will help us as we walk through this. Now I just wanna give one disclaimer. These kinds of messages are pointed to you and to me, right? Even as I preach this, it's hard for me to continually remind myself, how is this supposed to expose my heart and not for me to allow myself to read this thinking of somebody else, right? You ever have that? <laughs> you always try to say, okay, this verse, man, that part, you need this verse. Here, brother, this is for you. No, 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 this is for you today, okay? So wherever you sit today, and I'm speaking as I point to you, I have three fingers pointing back at me, right? I'm pointing at myself, we need this. So how is it that I can be a legalist? How is it that I can be a mystic and judge and try to disqualify others who are different than me? All right, so this is kind of what we're exposing in our own hearts today. The Holy Spirit is gonna be doing this through his word for us all. So the first point is don't be judged by legalists. And then we're gonna look at don't be disqualified by mystics. But this idea here of legalists is in verse 16. Questions you'll see. Maybe the booth can have that on there. Can leave that up for a little bit, I think. But passing judgment on you in regards to many of these things. Practices that are kind of food and drink, regard to festivals and feasts and new moons and Sabbaths and some of those things you'll notice aren't wrong at all. In fact, they were required in the Old Testament. They were the way that reflected that you were a Jew, that you were a follower of Christ, that you, uh, uh, sorry, of, of the Jewish faith and you were a believer in Yahweh. This is the way you observed the Sabbath. You followed the different feasts and festivals that God himself had established. And so many of these things are good things. But Paul is saying, don't let people cast judgment on you You'll often see the church here operating and serving and following Christ. Someone's gonna come along and tell you that you're not doing enough. You need to add this, you need to add that. 
they've figured out the way. And so in this case, often with this legalistic kind of way that you're not measuring up to the standard that they've placed on their life, on your life, right? Isn't that kind of how often we experience this? You could say uh, words that, you kind of this kind of extreme fundamentalism which often may happen, this outward conformity that often may happen based on personal convictions and matters of conscience that instead are not lo- no longer personal things but they take on the weight of a moral law that's now placed upon everyone else around you. Making my personal preference, preference into a standard that you must hold and you must measure up to. And when you don't, I will judge you for not measuring up to that personal preference. This is a way of describing legalism. We're not talking about right doctrine here. We're not talking about uh, the essentials of the faith. We're not talking about holding to your conviction and the belief the word of God lays down for us. I'm talking about making third tier, fourth tier things, first tier things. First things first, right, is what we ought to be seeking for. So we're not talking about truth, gospel. We're not talking about Jesus Christ. In my Sunday school classes, we talked about the importance of the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three-in-one triune God, that that is properly represented in our doctrine and our teaching. That is vital and essential to our faith. We're talking about those things. We're talking about things in which we place a legalistic standard where we have our own measuring stick that we measure everyone else up to. Look at the clothes I wear or the music I listen to or don't listen to or what is fine for me to do in my aspect of personal conscience where I am with my relationship with Christ and yet someone else isn't, uh, doesn't see it that way and so we can't exist together but we judge one another what I eat or don't eat, what I drink or don't drink, how one dresses, a worship style, hairstyles, I mean you name it color of the carpet, whatever we'd like to argue about. What is it today, right? These aspects of measuring sticks we use, these regulations we put. You'll see in verse 21, Paul says again, these are dietary Old Testament Jewish Judaizing restrictions that were started to be placed on the Jews who are now becoming Christians and now Gentiles who have become Christians. The Jews are saying, no, you need to not handle this. You need to not touch this or you need to not taste that. And so verse 21 describes that idea, do not touch, do not taste, do not, these aspects of do nots. In verse 22, describes to us that this is actually something that Jesus himself said. For he says, do you not know that these things of do not eat this kind of food, don't eat meat offered to idols or whatever you would go as talks about in Romans. He's saying, look, these kinds of things Jesus described as well. For he says, do you not know that these things perish as they are used? The food that you eat goes into your mouth and goes out the other side. I'm not trying to be crude for actually Jesus said this, all right? So look at Matthew 15, you're like, no we didn't. Okay, well Matthew 15 verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, he says. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart for that is what defiles the person. He's saying this, these externals are important but they are not what truly defiles you. What truly defiles you is the matter of your heart. And he's speaking to the Pharisees that were wonderfully good at externally conforming to every rule and regulation they placed, but inwardly, they were whited sepulchers, they were dead man's bones, right? So Jesus ran into this constantly for he was judged for being and eating on the Sabbath and doing a variety of things on the Sabbath. He and his disciples are walking by by a, a field and they take and eat of the grain on the Sabbath day and he's judged and said, how dare you violate the Sabbath as a rabbi, as a teacher. In Matthew 12, 8, he reminds them. 
The Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. And in fact, in Matthew 12, 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I am God. I am Lord. I have made the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant to provide rest and service for me. It is not an external law that is meant to control me and bind me, but rather set me free, you could say. And so these matters of conscience, these aspects of living with one another, though we might differ, are gonna be coming up all the time, all the time. Uh, As a church family, we have to consider ourselves, our fellow brothers, our sisters, our backgrounds. We we often have maybe heard of the phrase in the essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity or love, right? And Colossians 3.13 reminds us, next chapter, or next couple of messages, we'll look into it. In Colossians 3.13, it says, and above all things, Put on love, put on love. There's a great way to start. For love, he says, which binds everything together, together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you have been called into one body. This is the first essential thing he is saying. Like, look, you're gonna have differences of opinion on a variety of things all the time. You're human beings living in one community. So above all, put on love, love first, Give mercy and walk in peace with your brothers and sisters. Don't live your life based on your personal convictions of telling everyone else what to do in these sense, right? There's nothing wrong with practicing certain religious observances, having different measuring sticks in your own life. There's a variety of things that I have set up for me and my family and my personal life that I don't hold you to. Is there things that personally we do as a family? Personally, I do as a Christian from my own background. There's a variety of things, and this is gonna come up all the time, and I don't have time to get into it, but these ideas of, of, of oftentimes where we have been walking through a very volatile season in the past couple of years. Have we not? Maybe, yes, no. Um, the concepts of, of politics, of COVID, All of these things can often have central elements in which the church is meant to be a place that speaks the truth. But it is very challenging, I'll say, for me as a pastor and as an elder team uh, and the deacons here at the church to try to navigate the waters as to what is a personal conviction, what is something in which we wanna support you in your personal convictions and not try to violate those and trample on those? And then what are things that we as a church really feel are foundational to the truth and as our job is to advance the gospel that we need to take a stand on? And so I'm just saying that these conversations happen all the time among us as a leadership team and they are not as easy as you might think. <laughs> and especially in today's social media world and reactionary world, we're often the loudest and the most angry get the most attention, right? And so we have to be a church that is allowing a place for people to come and grow together despite the differences we have in personal conviction. And so we have to be careful of the dangers. As one book uh, writes this idea, uh, Gavin Ortland writes this concept where he says, we have to be careful of the dangers of sectarianism and the dangers of minimalism. The sectarianism, the the legalism that wants to separate from everyone and everything at all times because no one measures up to my standards, right? And so there is a constant dividing and separating all the time from everything, everywhere. Extreme sectarianism. And then the other side of extreme minimalism, he says. So minimalizing everything. 
as long as they're nice, they don't do whatever, we just minimalize it. And so nothing is a big deal, nothing is really essential, and everything goes. And you'll get all kinds of those things, these super uh, pendulum swings of legalism, you could say on the other side, this kind of uh, mysticism that we'll be looking at in a moment. And so be careful of these things that we don't have to live in, in this life. And I think Paul is actually kind of encouraging here. What is he saying? He says, don't let people judge you on these things, right? He's not saying never judge in this sense. Well, we would talk about those are other messages, but this concept, he's saying, actually saying, don't let people pass judgment on you all the time. Basically, don't have to constantly live in guilt as to what other people think of you all the time. It's just, it's not healthy. He's already described how we're sufficient in Christ to live in him, walk in him. Honor Christ with your life, boast in him, and let the rest fall where it may. So there is a certain sense of encouragement to build your foundation in him. Don't argue all the time about the color of the drapes. Is that, is that in a sense what he's saying? Like, let's get along in that. The substance and the reality belongs to Christ. Those things are mere shadows. So let us walk together in unity and peace and love. This is, this is what we're saying. And so we've dealt with this kind of idea that I think we all have experienced one time in our lives and we have all found danger to in our lives, the danger of this kind of uber conservative legalistic kind of way of trying to regulate every aspect of your life based on my personal convictions not based on the word of God. So we have looked at that. That's what Paul, I think, is really trying to say in verse 16 and 17. Then he leads us into verse 18, which he emphasizes a different kind of legalism, you could say, one that is kind of this aspect of, I'm using the word today, mysticism today, that I think it helps, and I'll explain what that means. But I think both sides here emphasize works and performances in one manner. Look at the things I don't do on one side, Look at all the things I avoid, and then look at all the things I can do, and all the things I am, right? And really, ultimately, both are about me, right? And what I can do. And so I think both have this danger, and we've got to find a balance and standing in Christ and in Him alone. So legalism often preaches this self-centered regulation, and mysticism often preaches a self-centered experience. Both lack Christ's true power and both void of Christ-centeredness. Is that, is that fair there? Christ-centeredness. So the, the second point is don't be disqualified by mystics, verse 18. Disqualifying you, like you don't qualify for their level of spirituality. This is kind of the uber-spiritual who look to put others down. Uh, somebody was making a joke the other day of explaining when, when you go away to an awesome vacation. Have you ever had this? I've even done this myself. Where you go to an awesome vacation, you have all these pictures from this vacation. Say you were in the Cayman Islands or something and you're showing people all the pictures from the vacation and, and you constantly remind them as you're showing them pictures that, well, you weren't there. You, you weren't there to experience it. You, you really don't know what it was like because you had to be there, right? You ever had someone constantly remind you? You know, if only you were there and you're like, okay, I get it. I wasn't in the Cayman Islands with you, okay? I'm not as good as you, right? You know? And there are those types of people along the trail who remind you, I got to this point along the trail before you did, and look at all the things that I can do and have done, and one day you'll reach the level that I have achieved, right? And, and you're like, well, that's kind of silly, but I think we're all facing that. Either don't do this, you're not good enough, or look at all the things that I've done, and one day you'll be good enough just like me. Both centered on one person's false humility, humility, as Paul says here in verse 18, don't let people disqualify you insisting on asceticism or this false humility of self-denial, I guess you could describe that word, or worship of angels, or going on in detail about visions, or puffed up 
about themselves with reason, without reason in their sensuous minds. And so Paul goes into this idea, okay, be careful of the legalistic side of things, but also the mystic side of things, where mysticism is this word that I, I don't know if it's a perfect word to describe this, but I couldn't think of other things, and I think it's helpful. Maybe not perfect, but mysticism says it's a belief in the direct experience of God, especially by means of personal contemplation instead of rational thought. So putting thought aside and just relying wholeheartedly on experience. Such experience that a person had, you could use words like spiritism, superstition, these other things that Paul's already described back in verse eight. And, and it's not discounting, again, let's, don't misunderstand me, it's not discounting that personal experiences matter. Are we, we, are we on that? This is important, right? That, that it doesn't matter even that rules and certain laws that you place in your life to live by don't matter. And, and it's not about that personal experience doesn't matter. It's that wholehearted reliance on either will destroy your faith. But it's built on Christ, not those things. And so the first point, he says, insisting on asceticism. Again, this idea of strict self-denial, often placed in a self-humility. The person who is fasting maybe starts out for a good reason, but constantly reminds you that they're fasting, right? Is a person who is walking through this challenge to make sure that you know they are experiencing a very spiritual thing. Or, or this idea of insisting, again, this idea of insisting on the worship of angels. This is a very complicated phrase. In fact, I'm not gonna go into it too long, but it's a very challenging thing to understand. What in the world is he talking about? Worshiping of angels? In fact, this isn't mentioned too many other places, um, but he does say in this way, it could mean kind of two things. It could mean this idea that they are worshiping in such a way that the angels have joined them in the chorus and they are now worshiping with the angels. Or as the ESV has translated the concept that they are literally worshiping angels. Either way, they're distracting from the worship of the one true God and in Jesus Christ alone. They're either worshiping angels and differencing this kind of spiritual kind of ascent that they have arisen to, this mystical communion with angels, worshiping shadows instead of focusing on the substance. Right? And so they're insisting others worship in that way as well. Or they go on in detail about visions, the passage says. They're, they're going on, not necessarily discounting that visions may never happen, but the idea that their visions are central to them and to everyone else. Everyone knows what it's like when someone can't go on in detail about themselves. We call these people narcissists, right? People who are consumed with me, right? They are, and, and really this idea of puffed up comes from here. Their experience is more than anyone else. And Paul refers to people like this in 2 Corinthians. He calls them super apostles, kind of mocking them, that they view themselves as super apostles, better than him and everyone else, and they want everyone to know it. And then this is the idea that they are puffed up without reason by sensuous, of mind, sensuous minds. And this idea is that they're self-centered, narcissistic, puffed up about themselves, and love and all of these things have been set, set aside for the love of themselves. They have an inflated idea of their own importance. And then this phrase, sensuous mind, is really quite stark. Why? Their minds are sensuous, meaning they are self-centered on their flesh. And so the concept here is really quite bold. For though they may think themselves to be spiritually superior to everyone in reality, their hearts and minds are sensuously focused on their lusts and desires. That is like a bold statement that Paul says. And why? Well, look at the next phrase. Look at verse 19. Reason by their sensuous mind and not, what are they not doing? 
They're not holding fast to the head, which makes the whole body work. So you could say, colloquially, they are decapitated, okay? They are a decapitated body. That works for Halloween these days, all right? They are a decapitated body. They have lost the head. They are a body that is trying to operate without a head. It doesn't work. So they're a body without a head. They're uh, maybe for some of you younger people, they're a cell phone without reception or Wi-Fi, okay? It's uh, not very useful, right? It has the appearance of doing a lot of really cool things, but it ain't going anywhere, right? How frustrating is that, right? No reception, no Wi-Fi. The world might end, right? Okay, it's a, it's a car without an engine. It's a car that looks flashy, it looks nice on the outside, but it isn't going anywhere. It's not holding fast to the head. It's simply chasing shadows to ignore the substance. They're living in a false reality consumed with themselves, and they do have, however, the appearance of wisdom, as it says in verse 23. There is a, an appearance in wisdom. There is an outward facade, but inwardly they're promoting self-made religion. You could say self-reliant religion, not Christ-reliant and asceticism and the severity of the body. And ultimately these things have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Why? Well look at verse 20. Verse 20, the whole body has been nourished and grown up and in verse 20 it says, if with Christ you died to these things, then why are you still acting like you're alive in them and they still control you and they still dominate you? No, you have died to the world, he says, you're alive in Christ, so what are you doing? Grow with the growth that comes from God and in his power. You are alive in him. You aren't chained trying to prove your worth anymore. Look, I measure up to your standard. Look, I'm good enough, notice me. No, 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 you, you, you are all the value that you need in Christ. You're not chained to guilt and shame constantly. You haven't, but you've, uh, that has been nailed to the cross. You are free to walk in Christ, as we said last week. You are now free to move about the cabin, right? You're free to walk in him. Go, enjoy the freedom and the joy that you have in Christ. Just trying harder to do more to earn your way to heaven isn't going to help you. Dwell in the power of the Spirit. Live and walk in the Spirit, and you will not def- uh, gratify the lust of the flesh. So what are we doing? Listening to people, as the NLT says, with high-sounding nonsense that has had this idea of this outward kind of, po- uh, this promoting of self-made and the appearance of wisdom. This is foolishness, he says. This is like a dog, as Proverbs says, returns to his vomit. What are you doing? So Paul is getting warning us. Colossians 3, one through three. If you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above. For your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is where your life exists, Colossians 3, one through three. Galatians 2.16 also describes this idea before we come here to the close. It says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Did you hear that? Not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In Colossians 2.23, these things, works of the law, outward shows, self-gratification and self-attention, legalistic standards that you place on everyone, these are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, for they don't change your heart. They might, yeah, they might make you change your clothes, but they're not changing your heart. And so this is the concept that he's exploring. 
And so as we come to an end, I was trying to figure out how a way to, to, to um, and I know some of you are, are already joking, like you're coming to an end. Yeah, right, Jordan, okay. All right, we're coming to an end. And this idea of what is it then that we're supposed to do? Well, we've already pointed what we're to warn against. These things have no power. They are shadows, not the substance. So what is it that we're supposed to do? How is it that we escape the shadows? Well, he points us to it in chapter three. So on your time, read through, study chapter three. I think that's where he's directing us. That's how we truly escape the shadows. But the, this idea of the pendulum that swings both ways of extreme, strict, fundamentalist, legalist kind of way of living and a strict kind of other way, this mysticism experience built on my experience, this idea of these two ways are the two things that are distracting us from truly doing one thing, which is boasting in Christ and in Christ alone. Both ways are means of human boasting. Look at me. And yet here, Christ is reminding us where to look at him. And Paul is telling us with his own, his, own, um, his own experience. In fact, as we close, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians. I'm gonna just hop around here a little bit. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. Actually, probably more or less, uh, yeah, the end of chapter 10, verse 17. And then we're gonna look at uh, chapter 11 a little bit. In, in fact, your small groups are gonna examine some of these passages in greater detail, just for time's sake. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul is reminding us about the importance, yes, of knowing what you believe, standing in Christ, and boasting in Him alone. For there will be constantly people who want to draw attention to themselves, what they have done, how they know this and don't know that. And he's saying, be careful, be careful. You will be distracted to start worshiping shadows which are not the substance of reality, which is Christ and Christ alone. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 16 and 17, verse 15 and 16 he talks about how he's, he's preaching the gospel in lands beyond without boasting of a work that's already done in other areas of influence. In verse 17, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 17, and let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That just is so simple. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 18 says, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. I always live by a quote that runs through my head all the time. Whether I am successful or not is not one half so much my business as whether I am faithful and true. What, what God does with all of this or doesn't do is not one half so much my business as whether I remain faithful and true and we boast in Him and not whatever I bring to the table. And we boast in Him and Him alone and then Paul goes on in chapter 11 and he actually like role plays a little bit. And he actually takes on the appearance like he's in a play. And he takes on the appearance that he's a super apostle. So what was happening is there were people creeping into the Corinthian church saying that they were this amazing apostle. They were better than Paul and Apollos and everybody else. Look at me, listen to me. They were a super apostle. And if you don't believe me there, look at verse five. He says, indeed, I consider that I am in the least inferior to these super apostles in chapter 11. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not in knowledge, indeed, in every way. And then he goes on and says in this verse 13 that ultimately these men were false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise that servants also disguise themselves like this. 
And then he goes on and he says, I will, I will be a fool for you. I will speak like a fool, like a super apostle. He wants everyone to look at himself. In verse uh, 21 and 22, he says, are they these super apostles Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they offering of Abraham? Well, so have I. Are, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments than them, countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less than one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. And he's like, you want me to go on and list my resume for you? I can do this all day, people. I can best the best of them. And yet that's not what I'm here to do, Paul says. You know why? That's not what I'm here to do. Paul, the great apostle Paul, does not draw attention to himself. He says in verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. May we be a people that humbly walk in the power of God where his Holy Spirit is alive and well and empowering this church. But let us never be a people who draw attention to themselves, judge others constantly upon all things, seek to disqualify others for not meeting the standard that we have, but rather we would be a people in a church and that I would be a person that boasts in Christ alone. That he is the one we seek and that in my weaknesses his power is made perfect and complete. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We boast in these things and we boast in Christ. For the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord and his power. We crave the real thing. We focus on the substance and the reality and we preach Christ in Christ alone. And then he reminds us as I close, Colossians 3.12 reminds us As a church, as a body, as we're about to do, we're gonna walk out there, we're gonna enjoy some food, and we're gonna fellowship and laugh and enjoy life, right? Paul is reminding us in these very touchy things, and I could say, in these very touchy times we live in, right? Colossians 3.12 reminds us, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called into one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiveness, thankfulness in your hearts to God. For whatever you do, in word or deed, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for all that you have taught us and challenged us with today. We pray to you in this moment, Lord, knowing you hear our words. Lord, I also pray that you would see our hearts. You would see our hearts. For God, forgive us when we seek to prove our worth to you. God, we need you. May you be the center of this church and these people. And yet, God, if there's someone in here
that doesn't know you, doesn't have a relationship with you, they, they feel as if they've been working and trying to earn their approval, God, would you visit them today? God, would you call them forward to meet with one of us or the prayer team after? God, that they would be able to have a conversation where someone could show them the love of Jesus Christ and his grace and mercy upon all of us, no matter where we've come from, no matter what we've done. God, let you love us. That you have taken our sin and nailed it to the cross, canceled our debt, buried us, raised us. We walk in you. Lord, help us to live out that today and to encourage one another in these things, to remind each other of the joy of the Lord that is our strength that we walk in today. And God, that we would live free people of God, help us with that, Lord, to live free under your grace and mercy. For God, you, have, you are good and you have done all these things. You are our cornerstone and the foundation of our faith. You are central. We worship you today in that. In Jesus' name, amen.